Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I am joined in with a very special guest, somebody that I actually discovered on one of my favorite forums online, which is the the Ray Pete forum. Uh, and I came across uh, one of his articles on Medium, and I was instantly captivated and astonished by the level of detail um, that this gentleman was going through. So what I want to do is uh, welcome, uh, he, he goes by the name Things Various on online. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So maybe do you want to give my listeners a bit of a background into, I guess, your journey and how you sort of got so interested in understanding hormones? Um, it started when um, I'm a medical student. Now I'm in my final year. But um, during my first year, um, basically, I went through a period where my personality started to change. I got more withdrawn. Um, I had less energy. And I just wasn't, I felt, didn't feel like myself anymore. And being a medical student, I started to look into things more closely. And what I discovered after doing lots of experimenting myself and like everybody else, trying out different 
things like from fasting to stimulants and so on, I discovered that my testosterone was very low. And um, after going to many, many doctors and nobody could really help me, they all said I was fine because my total testosterone was in range. But at one time I, I figured that, yeah, despite my total testosterone being in range, my free testosterone was very low actually. And um, I looked more closely at other hormones. And what I discovered was that for some reason, multiple of my hormonal axes were failing. So I was low in multiple of them. And being a medical student, being young and quite, yeah, I, I like risk. I started to experiment. And what I figured out was that how much better you could feel, how much easier life is, how much more enjoyable life is if I started to replace them. And this might... I mean, at, the, at first, um, the start was rocky, but after, I would say, roughly around one to two years of intense studying, experimenting, researching, doing blood work and stuff like that, <clears throat> I started, I came to a point where I realized that um, it's not just not going to do it um, if I replace one or two of my hormones because hormones need to be in balance. And if I just um, replace one or two, um, mine, at least for me, uh, the other ones were suboptimal. They were not in balance with each other. Mm. And I arrived at the state where now I replace all of them. And I've learned so many things along the way. And I know from personal experience and from um, friends and family that so many of us have hormonal imbalances and they can really destroy your life. And we are usually just not aware of the invisible forces that are basically being there in the background all the time, influencing how we feel, how we think, how much energy we have, how much others like uh, being around us, um, how we look. And um, given there is no real, really comprehensive research out there, I thought I might share online with what I've learned and discovered on my way in like a no bullshit way, because there's just so much misinformation when it comes to hormones. Most doctors, they are completely unaware. They um, do not even recognize like neon flashing signs of hormonal deficiencies. And that results in a lot of suffering for a lot of people out there. Mm. So what I want to do is sort of backtrack and go through some of the, um, some of the testing that you did in your early days. Like, did you simply just, um, order, you know, get blood tests done, um, privately? And then did you use any advanced testing like the Dutch test at all or? No. So, um, what I did actually, like we're in Europe, and it's quite easy for us to get blood work um, done by a doctor. If, especially for me as a medical student, I just go there and say what I want and what I need. And they just, usually they just give it to you. And then I got, um, yeah, lots of testing done myself. And um, I usually told the doctors it's for a special appointment at um had an um, endocrinologist and this is what I need all these tests. And they were just, yeah, I, we don't even check it. And they just gave me all the tests at one and a half. And um, I, it's very hard to test for hormones though. So blood work is usually not enough. You really also need to check for signs and symptoms and also tests like saliva tests and stuff like that. They're all worthless. So the only way I think um, is reasonable to do other than urinary cortisol tests is to go uh, via blood work, but you need to look especially at the free level of hormones. Because for me, for example, my testosterone was in range in my early days. Um, but the reason was not because my testosterone was okay. The reason was because my sex hormone binding globulin, which is a protein that binds up 
the fraction of testosterone, leaving just around like 30 to 40 percent free and bioavailable, um, was very high, binding up most of my testosterone my cells couldn't use. Interesting. So now, now we're sort of touching on um, testosterone. I can sort of chime in and add my experience there. I mean, I um, I managed to get my total testosterone to 988 nanograms per deciliter, which is quite high. Uh, I, I got that, you know, naturally through um, various methods. You know, I was eating, you know, very high calorie diet. I was um, mm. training very heavy, like, you know, squatting heavy, things like that. But my SHBG was also very high. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned that. So let's sort of Let's focus in on SHBG. I want to ask you more yeah. about what can drive up SHBG. So, so the thing is, um, SHBG is a protein that is expressed and synthesized by hepatocytes, which are liver cells. And there are uh, multiple um, transcription factors that regulate its production. And most of these transcription factors are hormonal. So all the hormones drive down SHBG, but the thyroid drives it up. And the most important of these hormones is insulin. If your insulin is very high, especially if you're a high-calorie diet, I mean, especially a high-carbohydrate diet, your SHBG is going to go down by a lot. And if your insulin is low, for example, you do intermittent fasting, you do ketogenic diets, um, or you are on caloric restriction, then your SHBG will rise. Um, And many people that go on ketogenic diets and um, do fasting protocols to actually turn out to have very SHBG being fooled that just their testosterone is normal or high, even though it is not. You really need to look at like free testosterone. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. So I want to, yeah, then I want to sort of delve into, um, let's sort of, let's go back to thyroid because I know you've had a lot of experience replacing mm. um, your thyroid hormone. So there was one key point that you mentioned in one of these articles that it really, it really surprised me. And it was the relationship between how no matter how much thyroid you replaced, if your cortisol was low, you would never increase your body temperature. So, oh, yeah. man, so tell us more about that. Yeah, I actually uh, found that out, out the hard way because um, I knew like what a physiological temperature looks like. Um, and even online, there are tons and tons of people in different communities that um, track their uh, thyroid um, status via uh, our vital signs, which is blood pressure, temperature, and um, our pulse. But um, what many of these find empirically is that no matter how much thyroid they take, I mean, the body temperature does rise slightly, but it doesn't go up if cortisol is low. For one, um, cortisol, I mean, all the hormones, they act on nuclear receptors, which means um, they directly um, affect gene expression. And there are sometimes genes um, that need in their promoter region, which means um, determining how much a certain gene is expressed, a combination of different transcription factors. Mm. And if one of them is lacking, this is going to be the uh, missing link or the limiting factor. And for example, like with probably many genes associated with body temperature, like um, 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 ion channels and stuff like that, um, you need both of the hormones in adequate levels. 
And um, it's getting much more more complex than this. But cortisol basically elevates our, our basal metabolic rate mm. partially by um, upregulating our sympathetic drive, our sympathetic nervous system, which means our um, adrenergic tone. And if cortisol is very low, so will be your adrenergic tone. And how thyroid also stimulates body temperature is by increasing um, adrenergic tone as well. But cortisol um, increases the number of receptors for adrenaline and noradrenaline. So um, if either one of these is low, your body temperature is going to be low because of a lot of factors. I just touched like on two of them. We, they're not even fully elucidated, but empirically, um, you you can try. I mean, I tried going up higher in, in thyroid. I tried to titrate up the dosage. At one point, I was using T3 only, which is quite a radical therapy, which I do not recommend, which is the active form of thyroid hormone. But even if I increased by a lot, being well in the super physiological range, my body temperature just didn't get any higher. And mm-hmm. even adding very small dosages of cortisol, it like the temperature shut up, and I had to like decrease my total dose of T D three. I do not recommend this. It was just for science. Of course, of course. So what I want to know more about is cortisol replacement. Now I am also someone with, according to my Dutch test, my total metabolized cortisol was so low that it was off the actual chart. It was actually so Uh low. And back at the time, unfortunately, I was also anemic. So I know that there was Uh a low iron can influence cortisol secretion. I've looked into the research there. But this is the thing. I don't want to go ahead and use something like licorice, which can, you know, licorice can help. So, So the thing is, the solution for me, it's if I, you know, used hydrocortisone, which I haven't, but I have my dad's a pharmacist and I can get some very easily. The issue with that is like, right, replacement. Well, then what about the negative feedback? Then if I stop taking it, am I going to be suppressed even more? Yeah. So um, there were many questions, actually. Um, the thing is, let's start off with hormonal suppression. Um it all depends on how plastic slash resilient your hypothalamus and pituitary are. Let's say you have two people on 10 milligrams of hydrocortisone or any other hormone. Um, usually, for most people, suppression is just partial, which means, let's say, 30 to 40%, even after it, had re- it has reached equilibrium after two mo- a few months, and it's just temporary. Mm. which means that once you taper off, then um, the negative feedback falls away and hypothalamus is sending out signals again, leading your glands to um, secrete more of the hormone and also to hypertrophy again. But here is the issue that some people, they actually, the reason their one or multiple hormones is low, um, they have hypothalamic issues. It's not adrenal fatigue. No, it's that has nothing to do with the adrenals. It's your hypothalamus that's not sending the signals. And if you're one of these people, then even very small doses of um, cortisol can actually suppress you fully. And this can be dangerous because if you wean off or if you um, stop suddenly, that could theoretically, I mean, it's not likely not going to happen, but in the worst case, it could um, actually result in a, an adrenal crisis which it means you have no cortisol, you have a circulatory collapse, and it's a life-threatening situation. Um, but yeah, for most people, small doses of cortisol, they do not fully suppress them. 
I mean, cortisol is a very important hormone and um, it's very rare that someone is completely suppressed, which means their ACTH is zero. That's the stimulating hormone for the adrenals. Um, given small physiological dosages are used, if you use hydrocortisone, if you use prednisone or dexamethasone, two um, synthetic um, corticosteroids that have a very long half-life, yeah, then you're going to be suppressed, even at small dosages. I do not recommend these. Right. So there's a clear distinction there between... Um, so hydrocortisone is basically uh, mimicking that. Like, it's like TRT, right? But it's like... CR. Yes and no. Okay. So the thing is, our cells have a balance between cortisol and cortisone, which are cortisone is the inactive form. And there is an enzyme, it's called um, hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1 or 2, and they mediate the interconversion between these two. Hmm. And for normal people, the ratio between these two hormones in the tissues is around 0.8. It's determined by different um, metabolite ratios. It's very, it's very technical, getting very, very technical now, and probably many are not interested. But if you use hydrocortisone, then your ratio is going to shoot up probably to 1.1. And if you use cortisone acetate, which is what I use, the inactive form of cortisol, so the cortisone, which needs to be activated by the liver and the tissues, then your tissue ratio is going to be 0.6, 0.5. So if you actually use hydrocortisone, um, giving the active form of cortisol, your liver is getting a disproportionate dose of hydrocortisone in one go and lots of that cortisol escapes out into the circulation in the active form but normally when our body secrete it they also go through the liver but in a more sustained way and liver can regulate the balance between these hormones so actually giving hydrocortisone actually um, leads to you having more cortisol tissue exposure compared to our normal natural secretion Whereas if you use cortisone acetate, which is I use, which I think is much better and safer, um, then you have a lower um, tissue exposure of total glucocorticoid load. Interesting. So when, like, let's say, uh, I want to look at some of the effects on body composition. Like, did you notice any changes? Yeah. In, yeah so do you want to explore that? Yeah. Uh, for cortisol, actually, I was super scared because I knew that from the medical literature and also I've personally seen it myself that if your area under the curve cortisol, how much cortisol you're exposed to daily, um, that does a lot of damage from metabolic syndrome to fat, um, adipose tissue accumulation in trunk fat, the moon phase, the hair loss, the graying, all the kind of things. But um, it will mess up your lipid profile. But now after three years of replacing my cortisol with, I would say, an average replacement dose, I've noticed nothing. My metabolic health improved. I've not gained any body fat. I'm around usually around like 8%. Um, no, noticed nothing with hair or fat. So the fear for me at least was completely um, unfounded. But I also have to admit that I do replace the anabolic hormones and other hormones, thyroid and growth hormone, and they require higher cortisol needs because metabolism increases. And depending on how fast your metabolism is, your cortisol needs go up. But if someone would replace cortisol in isolation and not um, at least have adequate amounts of anabolic hormones, then the cortisol is going to be much more powerful because it's, it's first unopposed. And second, you don't have the metabolic rate that needs a higher cortisol. So you cannot 
say, um, give a blanket statement that somebody, everybody needs, for example, the dose I need. Interesting. Man, super interesting stuff. Well, what I want to do is maybe for my listeners, you want to give them a bit of a snapshot of the differences in what you felt from a very low cortisol state to a very uh, high cortisol state. Actually, I'm not, I don't have a high cortisol state because I do measure, measure my ACTH, which is the signal sent from my hypothalamus to my adrenals, and it's well in range. And also, I did uh, a free urinary cortisol test on cortisol replacement, even though I thought because of the spillover, it's going to be fa- falsely elevated. No, it was not. It was completely normal for some reason. It's very unexplainable to me. But um, cortisol for me was the hormone that made by far the biggest improvement. While I didn't notice much from TRT, even going from a level of testosterone half the normal reference range um, in the free testosterone, which is like a castrate level basically, um, to being at the very top of the reference range, yeah, changes were meh. Like, I mean, I did notice improvements in energy, muscle composition a little bit. Um, also with thyroid, thyroid, my baseline energy, it was elevated quite a bit, but it was a not, not like an in-your-face change. Changes were occurring over a few months. But with cortisol, um, the first time I took it, I just took 2.5 milligrams of cortisol, uh, hydrocortisone, and I started shaking. Like, I really started shaking. Um, um, I just felt how my body was chock full with adrenaline because my body was deprived so long um, um, from this essential steroid. And um, for the first time in years, I have had like a really clear head without taking a cold shower, without doing some exercise, without drinking some coffee. And I just have seen the potential, how life-changing that could be. But I'm, well, I'm, I'm a very sciencey guy and I was very well aware how dangerous um, replacing cortisol is. And mm. um, it took me actually a very long time and a lot of thinking and feeling bad and uh, going through the literature and looking at different other people online, their journeys, and um, experimenting myself and just waiting for these two years. Now that I can say I'm very comfortable in what I'm doing is both good for my health and especially good for mm. my well-being and day-to-day functioning. Interesting. So just remind me, so your very first experience was with hydrocortisone at 2.5 milligrams. Is that your very first introductory dose? Actually, uh, no, it was with around 3.3 milligrams of cortisone acetate, which would equate to around 2.5 hydrocortisone. Right. And so that, that very first response, you got the... Um, it was a shock to the system? Like, what happened? Yeah, it was, like, not a shock. I probably overplayed it a little, but it was, like, in your head, now there was something happening, even at this tiny, mm-hmm. I mean, in your face, at this tiny, comparably tiny dosage. For fun slash science, I also gave the same replacement dose, or not replacement dose, the same dose, to a few of my friends. And two out of three haven't noticed anything. Wow. So that goes to show you that, you really, really needed it, right? Like, so you, I think you said, like, you will know whether or not you're deficient because once you replace it, you will feel it, right? Yeah, but there are dangers to it. Hmm. Uh, I mean, many people do contact me uh, because of the stuff I've written, and multiple of them, they actually 
have very high dosages of hydrocortisone. They go up to like 30, 40, even 50 milligrams per day, which is just way too much. Of course, you're going to feel these dosages and you feel good. You feel vital. You're full of energy, warm body temperature, um, clear in your head, maybe even euphoria. I mean, in, in psychiatry, they even say, the steroid euphoria, because corticosteroids, for, for example, used in autoimmune issues, they can induce psychosis and mania. Yep. It's the only hormone that can do that. And um, yeah, it's very dangerous to um, abuse cortisol stimulant. It's the most dangerous stimulant out there. I mean, mm -hmm. it is it is prohibited by and WADA, so the International Doping Organization, because of its potent stimulant, stimulant stimulatory effects. Um, it releases um, blood nutrients. It elevates your sympathetic drive. It um, increases dopamine like nothing else. The number of dopamine receptors, every step in the signaling um, cascade of dopamine neurotransmission. And um, this is dangerous because you might feel very good on five milligrams more hydrocortisone or uh, cortisone acetate per day, but you're going to make a, a long-term trade-off with your future um, health and longevity. So, I mean, I'm not saying that this trade-off is necessarily bad because let's say, for example, you do this for half a year and then this time now or you're opening up a company, you're um, writing a book, you're doing whatever will uh, further your life situation in, um, in beneficial ways and you're going to uh, benefit from that years down the line. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that from a health perspective, if your area under the curve cortisol remains too high for too long, Yes, you're going to run into problems. Mm. Oh, look, this is <laughs> it's it's just so fascinating because now I'm now I'm gluing together a lot of the things that I've I've used in the past. For example, <clears throat> one of my articles it actually went viral where I was talking about uh, ashwagandha, how it can induce. Yeah. Uh, did, I don't know if you've seen it, where it can induce anhedonia because it's um, so potently lowering cortisol. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm trying to find ways to like, I've been looking at different ways to how can I boost my cortisol? I don't want to use licorice. I've tried, you know, the... Um... No, licorice is crap because that is even more dangerous than hydrocortisone because licorice, um, um, it inactivates an enzyme. It Actually, it inactivates the hydroxysteroid dehydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydrohydr
I, I need the salt. Otherwise I'm going to like my blood pressure. I saw that at yeah. one stage, your blood pressure was like 105 over what? Like, yeah. Mine's lower, man. Like mine is ridiculous. Really? Yeah. It's very, very low. How, how do you feel? Um, I mean, some people do compensate and feel quite well, but I, I certainly didn't. I, I experienced the muscle weakness and that's, that's, that's the worst symptom is because like if my blood pressure's crashed, and I'm not retaining the sodium, I'm not getting the muscle pumps and I feel yeah. weak and dizzy. And I shouldn't be getting weak and dizzy. Yeah. In train, like, you know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. Hmm. yeah. So in, in my opinion, food cortisone is very underused. I mean, it's not ideal per se because many tissues have mineral, mineral corticoid receptors, for example, the heart and others. And if you use it in high dosages, there is going to be some remodeling. This is why some endocrinologists are scared of. But if I use, for example, 0.1 milligrams per day, which is uh, a normal aldosterone secretion, but despite not being ideal per se, it allows me to reduce my cortisol dose. And now, what do we want? Do we want the pest or the, the, the plague or the cholera? I, I choose the cholera. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm lowering my cortisol dose at the same time um, I'm going higher in fluorocortisone. Um, is certainly healthier than um, increasing my cortisol dose without a fluid cortisol. Mm. Have you looked into um, anything that can block or antagonize aldosterone? Like, what are the other? Are there any other? Like, can thyroid impact aldosterone or anything? Do you want to? Do you want to increase aldosterone or decrease? What is I want to. I want to increase because that's going to help with the sodium retention. Um, you're gonna eat um, eat a lot of um, potassium. That's just so, it's so confusing. So. More because the physiological role of aldosterone is not really the salt retention. It's much more the um, potassium secretion because evolutionarily, um, we ate a lot of stuff that contained lots of potassium, all this plant stuff. Um, I mean, we also ate a lot of animals, but we did eat some very low-calorie plants, and they had contained a lot of potassium. And the, the primary stimulus for aldosterone secretion is twofold. For one, it's uh, angiotensin II, which is um, a hormone elevating your blood pressure from the kidneys. And the other thing that directly affects the uh, cells um, synch- um, synthesizing aldosterone is an increased um, plasma um, potassium. Interesting. And the cortisol now, uh, the aldosterone now, um, leads to the expression of potassium secretion channels in, in certain cells in the kidneys, and at the same time to um, sodium retaining channels. Mm. I don't want to get too much into science, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's cool. I want to yeah. go back to more like the everyday person. I want to I want to look at yeah. this this topic here. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about how cortisol can influence your emotional depth and how yeah. I can yeah let's look at that all right so um let's say you fall in love and now you don't have any hunger you can't sleep you're quite euphoric all day well that's cortisol i mean there's quite a uh, um a lot of scientific data out there that the hba in the first time of passionate love in this first period, it's going into overdrive. Like your cortisol secretion is actually almost doubled. It makes evolutionarily sense because now you have this found this mate 
you need to bond. You're going to stay with him, her for life. And you better have all the energy available to keep her and to get after her. And um, in this state, cortisol is very high. You are quite emotional. You are very prone to just crying whenever you listen to um, um, stop the music or, or watch a romantic movie. And um, yeah, there is also like the cortisol really um, regulates all the monomines, which is dopamine, noradrenaline, and serotonin. And they have quite a lot to do with your emotionality at um, overall. And if these are low, you're going to be you're going to suffer from anhedonia. For example, if you're very low in T3, in, in active thyroid hormone or cortisol, your baseline state of your monomines will be very low as well. And the intensity uh, for your emotions, uh, of your emotions will be very low. And also, the basically, the propensity for your brain to generate them in the first place. Mm. And for me, um, I was quite anhedonic, especially socially anhedonic has multiple reasons. But um, cortisol elevated my emotionality like nothing else, even to the point when I first started out, um, probably my dopaminergic neurotransmission went into overdrive. I was super emotional. I mean, um, it can even bother other people if they're just not used to emotional you and now you're this, yeah, super intense emotional guy because you change um, um, neurobiochemical parameters. But for me, it just showed me that cortisol is necessary for adequate emotionality. And think about why, why do you think um, that people during puberty, they're, they're just basically emotional roller coasters going up and going down. Well, it's the cortisol and it's also the sex hormones that are just, yeah, they're, they're all over the place and usually they're very high. And um, also once people stabilize and once people become more rational, more stoic as they get older, well, I mean, of course, they're getting wiser, but it's also, and I would even say more, that your hormones drop, especially the cortisol, the thyroid hormone, the sex hormones. And now you, you're much less emotional. But in, in terms of emotionality, I would say cortisol is probably the most important of the hormones, even though it's one nobody ever looks at. Unbelievable. Just crazy. So, geez. So how do you define, because I know the anhedonia, I want to explore more on that because for me, I mean, I, I've definitely experienced more of the, um, have you looked into PSSD at all, like post-SSRI sexual dysfunction? Um, I haven't looked into it much, but I'm aware of what it is and how it's mediated. Yeah, because um, I'm still convinced that there's a cortisol aspect to to that. Like I think... There's a like, yeah, that emotional depth that um, completely dissipates in those uh-huh. that go on. Um, Cause like, have you looked into like how serotonin influences cortisol? Yeah. Um, I probably have to disagree with you. I would say it's the other way around. So mm. the, the reason in my opinion, why hormones influence emotionality is because they reg mainly because they regulate monomines. They do act directly on certain brain centers, like um, your cingulate cortices, your amygdala, uh, various parts in the brain, some hypothalamus. But the main way they do is via monomines. And if you use SSRIs, you basically um, bypass the hormones. You directly influence the monomines. And let's say um, for erectile dysfunction or libido issues, it all depends on a very complex interplay between serotonin and dopamine. It doesn't matter how you change the two, whether you use drugs like amphetamines, lelagine, or SSRIs to increase, um, or primipexil, a di- direct uh, dopamine agonist, or use the hormones. 
they all converge basically on the on the balance between these neurotransmitters. And um, with the SSRIs, um, the serotonergic tone is very important for libido. If it's too high, especially the amplitude, your libido is going to be very low. By amplitude, I mean, let's say you have something that increases serotonin, like your estradiol, which increases serotonin a lot. Um, but now, estradiol increases serotonin expression. And so if you look at the levels of serotonin in the synaptic cleft, there is going to be a lot of amplitude there. The release um, induced by estradiol is much higher compared to no estradiol. So we have a lot of amplitude. But if you use SSRIs, they keep the serotonin in the cleft, which means the amplitude with serotonin release is lower. So there is like a very little fluctuating level of serotonin there. And that has a lot to do with how libido is regulated. Mm -hmm. And this is the main reason why because um, there's no amplitude anymore, why SSRIs um, decrease uh, libido. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. So yeah, the, the exact same mechanism would be, let's say you use modafinil or uh, something that um, blocks the reuptake of dopamine. So now if we have if we block the reuptake, um, there is not much amplitude in the synaptic cleft. But if you use amphetamine or selelegine, something that induces a release of dopamine or cortisol or testosterone, then we do have a lot of amplitude there. And this is going to elevate the libido, increase mm -hmm. amplitude changes. Mm. Because if you, uh, I mean, it's not directly elevating the libido, but if you have a lot of um, neurotransmitter floating around all the time, for example, as it's rise with serotonin and um, dopamine with um, reuptake inhibitors, then there is down regulation on the postsynaptic receptors because they are stimulated all the time. And this down regulation leads to reduced um, neurotransmission. Mm. Now it's getting very technical. I mean, yeah. Well, let's, um, I want to hear about some of your, like the most ideal stack to like supercharge libido. So, like, let's, let's sort of explore that because I do a lot of oh. work. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, the most ideal stack. I mean, there are just so many different avenues how you can target that. I mean, you could increase dopamine amplitude by a drug, for example, selenogene, which is a mal B inhibitor, an enzyme that inhibits um, monoamine oxidase B, selenogene, exactly. Um, you could increase testosterone. You could make sure that your DHT is high. You could make sure for males that your estradiol is in range. Um, I, I've, I've written a, I go to my blog and go to, I, I added a section yesterday because I, I had a, a client, I do online consultations and his main issue was libido issues. And so I thought, yeah, maybe there are many, um, it, um, go to the, um, how to replace male hormones. And I thought many people might have libido issues. And so I might as well um, check out, uh, write uh, a short section about um, libido. And I added it there. And you can basically, I made a list of what impacts libido. And you can um, um, screw around with any of these variables. Mm. It should be towards the bottom. So, so true. You've seen, I'm sure you've seen when guys crush their... Um, Estradiol, yeah, zero libido, yeah, zero libido. Oh, estradiol is probably the sensitive most guys are most sensitive to. So if your estradiol is very low, very high, zero libido. If it's very low, zero libido. 
You know, there's one thing I've um, one thing I've heard about is uh, Psalms. Now you know Rad One Forty. It's a quite a yeah. I've heard that that can crush SHBG. Now I'm thinking maybe in my situation yeah. too risky. I think I think actually I would stay the hell away from Psalms because you don't know what you're getting. You don't know if that yeah. if it's an a- a- anabolic steroid, just the anabol or something else, just disguised as a arm. You have no way to check unless you ha- have access to laboratory university equipment but yeah. uh yeah but everything that increases androgen signaling in the liver that's going to crush your shbg and if you do oral sarms then yeah of course you're going to crush your shbg right there there's libido i mean there's a list of things that increase it and um yeah i said the two most important neurotransmitters are dopamine and serotonin signaling and then uh, there are multiple hormones that affect this neurotransmitter system and um, as well, there is oxytocin and uh, alpha MSH. Right. These two are very impo- important for libido. They are like neurotransmitter peptides. Mm. Increases fluids, iron, estradiol. So if your prostate gland fills, you're going to have higher libido. Because that's the reason why people that don't jerk off, their uh-huh. libido increases. It's not because their testosterone increases. No, it's the other way around. You don't jerk off, your prostate um, gland fills, there are afferent nerve signals going to your brain. Then libido is getting higher, and now GnRH um, secretion and downstream testosterone secretion is increased. So this tiny increase in testosterone is secondary to you not jerking off, but it's not the reason why your libido is higher. <laughs> Did you ever experiment with oxytocin at all? Or I did. I tried it a few times, yeah. Did it have much of an effect or you probably weren't efficient? Um, no, I, I certainly wasn't efficient because hormones regulate, especially estradiol regulates um, um, oxytocin. I mean, um, me and one of my best friends, we just, I mean, I was in the hospital. I was working in gynecology and I've seen some oxytocin in the fridge and I've just taken it. And we just um, injected it intramuscularly to see whether it has an effect. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very hard to tell because the effects are very subtle. But I did notice a significant boost in libido the next day. Usually my yeah. libido is, is quite low for some reason. I don't mind it because it, I think libido is quite distracting, Yeah, especially if you want to be just productive. But um, to me, I don't know whether it was possible or not, or whether it was just coincidence. Mm. The next thing, my libido was quite high. Mm. Just jumping back to thyroid, in the scenario where somebody has too much T4 and insufficient T3, what may that present as? Like, what have you seen? Um, uh, What would the the person look like? Well, maybe their, their general vigor vitality like do they because they're not converting much i know it's yeah. t4 it's, it's basically the phenotype of hypothyroidism uh, it's the exact same thing right because just because you're it's not called thyroid it's called people call it thyroid sensitivity but it's, it's much more conversion issues in the peripheral tissues by the enzymes called diodinases which uh, diodinate um t4 to t3 or reverse t3 and that, if that uh, process is screwed up then um, your tissue exposure to the active form of thyroid hormone is much lower, and which is the same as, as you are not getting uh, enough thyroid hormone overall. Just because something is it's much higher in the blood, it doesn't really matter. We really need to look at cellular action, and there is just no way to determine um, cell, cellular levels. And um, the, the, we don't really have biomarkers 
for hormones. We just have signs and symptoms, but no real clear-cut biomarkers we can measure, mm. unfortunately. And that holds hold for all the hormones. So just, just looking at blood tests, that is probably the most um, common misconception people have when they check their hormones. Mm. It's not just about blood. It's not about what is folding around in your blood. It's what about what is doing the thing in the cell. And we cannot measure that, unfortunately. Mm. Well, actually, I experimented with uh, pregnenolone, and I thought that that was going to be a good strategy to help with my low cortisol. But that ended up making me like pissing and urinating like crazy. And I just, I didn't respond well to it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, there are just so many pathways that can be impacted if you give more of a precursor steroid. I mean, it could mess up your aldosterone, it could mess up your cortisol. You don't really know what pathways the thing is shunted into. And I mean, what was your dosage like? It was uh, it was between 5 to 10 milligrams. It's not right, a, so that's a very low dosage. It was low dose, yeah. Yeah, weird. I, I can't comment on that. I mean, it could be due to multiple things. Mm. Most likely reason is that it impacted aldosterone. That's what I think. Way. Actually, what I want to talk about is um, ciproheptadine. Have you have you had much experience with ciproheptadine? The- I just used it one time when I w- was doing MDMA with a uh, very good friend, and it's basically an antidote to MDMA overdosage. So I had some on me. But other than that, I have literally no experience. I'm sorry. Yeah, because um, I did make a whole thread on how ciproheptadine has an amazing rebound effect and i'm thinking that maybe it's just a rise in cortisol once it leaves the system because it's used to treat cushions um yeah and i'm thinking maybe, maybe the reason why i'm feeling so oh, is it? i don't even know that yeah it's used to treat cushions. Okay. yeah because it's first generation antihistamine but then it's also yeah. blocks acth aldosterone cortisol adrenaline yeah like it's just a yeah it blocks all the neurotransmitters but the question is yeah, you might have um, a rebound in cortisol. That is uh, physiological. That's very possible. But um, it's not going to do much in the long term. No, I know, I know. Because then after, because that rebound will last maybe like three to five days and then back to baseline. So it was not, yeah. it wasn't yeah. a, you know, a, um, you know. Mm. One thing I found uh, funny you mentioned that. I hope you are not against me um, talking about my personal experiments with certain molecules. But one thing I found that just the opposite is a microdose of LSD. LSD, uh, the 5H2 2A receptor, stimulates cortisol secretion like crazy. Mm. This is why you feel very awake and alert and have no hunger in LSD. But because of this high cortisol, I mean, in, in the clinical setting, area under the curve cortisol is quadrupled to even five to six times higher. But this leads to negative feedback, and one or two days after, you feel like crap because your cortisol does not rise anymore. So it's basically the reverse. There is not going to be any long-term impact, but it's just the acute effect of um, increased or decreased negative feedback. Interesting. What about uh, psilocybin? Has that affected... Like, have you noticed any cortisol-like effects from that? Or, or? Um, I just microdosed with psilocybin once or twice, so I can comment on that. But it's probably the exact same mechanism, but much to much lower extent because its half-life is around like six hours. Yes. Whereas LSD um, binds very strongly to the receptor for like 15 to 16 hours. 
Mm. So I just I would just say it's much much lesser in amplitude and mm. effect size. Uh, I'm curious to know more about. I know I'm jumping around between topics, but I want to go back to prolactin. Um, yeah. The general rule of thumb, and I've you know I've looked into it as well. High prolactin not good for men, but I've also seen some research showing that very low prolactin can mimic the effects of like low DHT. Have you seen? I'm sorry, I can't comment on that. Um, I have literally no idea. Um, I think prolactin could also be more like a secondary marker. Whether it directly does something or not, we would need clinical experiments what prolactin infusion or administration really does. But unfortunately, in males, we don't have that. Mm, Because, I mean, I'm wondering if the... um... Because in general, I'm wondering if the relaxation and the, you know, the, the major, the calm down, but the, the feeling of, ah, you know, once a man orgasms, yeah. I'm wondering if that is the central mediator or is it just a dissipation of like oxytocin? Nobody knows. Some people say it's oxytocin. Some say it's prolactin. Some say it's just because you were dopamine and or adrenaline decrease. Some say it's a rise in serotonin. It's probably a combination of all these things. Yeah. And it's not, it's usually never, this is the thing. Because if we experimentally blocked one or the other, we would probably still find similar effects, but to a much lesser um, extent. Mm. It's usually really an interplay of multiple things. I mean, everything in our body and especially in our brain is highly redundant. Um, There are some things that are essential, but other than that, there are usually multiple um, feedback loops that, do or multiple ways that do the exact same thing at the exact same time. It's very robust. If you take out one of these, the whole system is still going to work somewhat. The feedback gain is not 100%, but it's, I mean, robustness is one reason why we vertebrates, we complex uh, multicellular animals are um, so um, hard to kill, like an adult vertebrate, unless you take out a, a vital function. Yeah, it's very hard to take down. I mean, pharmacologically, we can block so much. We can block the most important immune mediators, and your whole immune system is just there's just a slight change in equilibria. The exact same is with hormones. You can live with with 20 times the amount of testosterone in your body for years, or with no testosterone, your body is still gonna function. And the same is with like what does what is the reason why you're tired after sex? I mean or after orgasm. I think it might or is probably due to a, um, a multitude of things. Mm. And whether prolactin has any effect, I don't know. Mm. I honestly, I actually think no, because prolactin um, activates a state receptor. It's like a very complex ancient type of receptor that um, changes gene expression. And for gene expression to occur, we need like half an hour-ish to a few hours. And the tiredness and fatigue is right occurring right after we orgasm. Mm. It's probably uh, related to the monamine transmitters, like histamine especially, uh, a drop in histamine, a drop in noradrenaline, a drop in dopamine, and the rise in serotonin. Fascinating. <laughs> I think. I mean, it, I'm just made it making an educated guess here. Yeah, no, now, yeah. I mean, now I'm bridging all the knowledge that I have. And I'm, that's making the connections there. Um, I want to discuss a little bit about diet. Um, so I want to know more about, yeah, let's talk about some of the dietary 
interventions? What, what works well for you? In terms of libido or general health or the general you... energy? Let's talk about energy. Yeah. I'm a very, uh, actually, I would say I'm a very bad example to talk about. I mean, I found it works for me, but as I keep all my hormones constant, hmm. it's very hard for me to say whether my diet would naturally, when my hormones would respond and fluctuate depending on what I eat and how I eat, um, whether that would make me feel better or worse. I don't know. So my diet is usually a paleo type of diet. I've written an article about it, a diet everybody, uh, um, everyone does well on, it's called. And those are basically the things I adhere to. Yeah, it's the last article in that list. Interesting. Let's talk about, I want to see, I want to just talk about um, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen guys make when it comes to hormone like replacement therapy? What are some of the silly mistakes you've seen? Hmm. What are some of the dumbest things I've seen? Like, do they think more is better or like, yeah, that's usually the case. Most people think more is better or one of the most common misconceptions. I wouldn't say it's a dumb thing to do because it's a very human thing to do. Most people, when they replace a hormone, let's say testosterone or thyroid, um, or cortisol, and their symptoms do not fully improve. They increase the dosage of this hormone, and they think, I'm feeling better now. Symptoms are going down. It must be this hormone that is causing my symptoms. And then they go up into this, to these super physiological crazy doses. But that is the problem. And we need to have the hormones in balance. If one of our hormones is low, this is going to be a limiting factor. Of course, increasing testosterone, cortisol, thyroid, they're all stimulating. Um, they all can all be abused as stimulants. And many people abuse them as stimulants to reduce symptoms. But they think one is better than two. No, it's not. I mean, it's, it's much healthier to use multiple hormones at small physiological doses in a way that our cells are evolved to um, respond to them compared to going very high in a, in a single hormone. I've seen absurd dosages, not even just for bodybuilding purposes, but also for thyroid and, and, and cortisol, where people are just compensating for the other. I mean, they are, they're low in thyroid and cortisol, and they just go either crazy high in thyroid or either, either crazy high in, in cortisol. And that's going to have very detrimental effects on mm. on you and uh, downstream you yeah mm. so it's probably the one the most common misconception or the thing people do wrong they do not add multiple hormones at, at, at very small dosages because they think one is better than two yeah it's no. much healthier to do it the other way to balance the hormones makes makes complete sense makes sense yeah all right, we'll go. We'll go back to to diet because, um, yeah, I remember when I read this, uh, when I skimmed through this article, this 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 is the most important point uh, that I I think, yeah, this is a big point. You need to deserve your carbs, and this is something that I've been personally playing around with. I used to be very liberal, like I used to not really care about it. Um, I just you know have a very very high carb diet, like six hundred grams a day, but now. What I've noticed is I'm, I'm carb backloading and I'm pushing my carbs back later in the evening. And I'm wondering maybe that's what's, you know, helping with the cortisol. Cause you know, is it true that on a keto diet, you know, you're eliminating uh, carbohydrates 
it's going to increase cortisol, right? Like, yeah, but that is also a problem. So let's yeah. say you start out a keto diet and your cells are not adapted yet on a genomic level to use fatty acids and ketone bodies efficiently. So um, they need the glucose and your brain is now sensing glucose deprivation. And what does it do? What is the name glucocorticoid? It is actually a glucose-producing hormone. Cortisols, one of the many roles of cortisols are increasing gluconeogenesis in the liver and the kidneys to some extent, especially in the liver. And now you are deprived of, of glucose and, and, and the plasma nutrients, and cortisol increasing is going to increase. And people feel energetic. They feel well. They feel great. They have a clear head. They have energy. Yeah. That's your cortisol through the roof. Same um, thing as occurs in this uh, first state of passionate love. But the reason is some people, for some reason, they burn out. Their HBA crashes down the line. After three months, they just crash. Their cortisol does not rise in the morning anymore. They need to keep fasting, cold showering, all these cortisol-raising activities to basically just offset the very low baseline cortisol. But that's just adding fuel to the fire. Mm. And it happens so many times that people screw up their hormonal health and sometimes even permanently by doing these crazy dietary regimens that do work for some people. Some people do very well on a keto diet for years. It, there, are certain, uh, there are certainly many factors that um, have an effect on that. For example, how much is T3 going to drop? Some people, they have single nucleotide uh, polymorphism, different enzymes that mediate this conversion. And if you're one of the lucky ones, for example, your T3 is not going to drop. You're still going to have the energy. But if you're unlucky, then yeah, you might, uh, the keto diet might not be um, very good for you. And of course, it also depends on other hormones and your general state of health. But I would say, um, as a general recommendation, I would caution against being on a keto diet for extended periods of time because for most people, it is very bad for hormonal balance. It's a great way to um, become healthy, to get to lose body fat, to reverse metabolic syndrome, to decrease insulin resistance. But once you're already lean, then you're just pushing down leptin and also the low area under the curve insulin. They are both very stimulating to all of your hormones. It's going to be very bad for your hormonal health. And then you have to um, compare what are the downsides of a high-carbohydrate diet and what are the downsides of a low-carbohydrate diet but crappy hormones. And I would actually say that crappy hormones are much worse than a high-carbohydrate diet, <laughs> especially for how you feel on a daily basis and how you function. Mm. So I would, most people advise to like to serve, to stay between 100 and 200 gram complex as low-release carbs. That's where you can do much damage. <clears throat> And you can even do some physical activity. And of course, some people do better on a full-blown keto and some people do better on the higher range of carbs. But as a general generic um, prescription, I would say that it's like the best. Yeah. Mm. One point I want to explore is how does a low-carbohydrate diet influence the conversion of T4 to T3? Is it because the liver doesn't have enough glycogen? We need glycogen... Like what it's is the insulin? It's the insulin. Insulin, yeah. insulin is, is perhaps the, one of the main stimulators of um, D4 to D3 conversion. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
But you don't need to eat carbs to have insulin. I mean, lean meats does it as well. Yeah. Whether glycogen storage has an in- impact or influence, maybe. I can't, I don't know. But yeah. it's certainly the insulin that uh, does a lot of the conversion, that initiates the conversion process. Yeah. I mean, T3 is a carbohydrate metabolizing hormone. So whenever your thyroid increases, you do wow. metabolize more carbs. So there is a physiological, it does make evolutionary sense that if insulin, the storage hormone, the most anabolic hormone we have, rises that, yeah, use this fast energy you now just got. It does stimulate also glycolysis at the same time. And T3 um, does so as well. Fascinating. What about, I'm curious to know more about, like, how do you respond to dairy? Uh, dairy is one of my weak points. Um, I seem, I think I do not very well on dairy, especially dairy protein. But I like it a lot. I do eat yogurt and I do eat like cream, like um, spray cream, which is like kind of Swedish. But it's certainly not optimal. But I know that many people um, do very badly on dairy, mm. especially in terms of like um, the lipid profile and inflammatory markers. Once they drop dairy, their good <laughs> issues just go away. Their inflammatory markers drop their insulin resistance decreases because it's mostly um, due to the protein fraction of dairy. It's not because of the lactose, most people think, because the whey and the casein, they are both hormonally active. Mm. Um, I mean, it does make sense that for mammals who basically depend solely on, on breast milk during their early life, that they do get hormonal stimulation from the food they eat. And actually there are hypotheses that the whey and casein protein, they are transcytosed, which means they are actually picked up from the intestines and shuttled directly into the bloodstream as whole proteins without being degraded to some extent. And there might, they might, we don't know, they might act directly on the liver and the pancreas. So whey um, does, um, for some reason, and potently stimulate insulin secretion. It could also be mediated by the vagus nerve. We don't know. But for another reason, um, the casein, if you give, if you separate um, whey and casein and you have two groups and you give one group the whey and one group the casein, the whey group is going to have a much higher insulin release than what could be predicted from the protein and carbohydrate content. And the casein fraction does have no effect on insulin, but their IGF-1 is going to rise. We don't know why, but it's, it's, it has been tested many times. Mm. Did you say you've also experimented with um, growth hormone as well? Like you, I am on growth hormone. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I take one IU per day. Like at night or? No, I, I, yeah, most people advise at night, but I find my sleep is much better paradoxically if I take it in the morning. Crazy. It's the complete opposite yeah. of what, what you've um, what you. I know, I know. I mean, I know many people actually for you, me. How do you track sleep, your sleep though? Do you use aura? Yeah, I, I do. Ha- I, the, or I use the aura ring and I do wake up very early and my sleep is much more restless if I mm-hmm. use the growth hormone at night. So I'm sort of making links now because whenever I use the sauna, I've got an, infra- I've got an infrared sauna. Yeah. And if I use that at night, it spikes yeah. growth hormone. I'm wondering. Yeah. That, and my sleep is shocking, like really shit. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. It could also be related to body temperature, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be many things. But for me, I'm very empirical and quite scientific in my approaches. 
in a, I'm very sure that at least for me, growth hormone does reduce the quality of my sleep if I take it at night. It does increase overall quality of sleep if I take it in the morning. But then it's not the growth hormone anymore. Then it's the IGF-1 that rises. Mm. So higher IGF-1 leads to a better, more efficient sleep. But growth hormone per se seems to stimulate adrenaline to a certain extent. Funny anecdote, um, I, my dad is now 50. Um, I wanted to put him on growth hormone. Um, I gave him some, and I said, yeah, just inject the tiniest dose at night. I did it for two days. He stopped because he could not sleep. He was fully awake for the first hours. Jeez. Probably he had palpitations. It was this tiny dose in growth hormone. It's probably induced um, very high state of sympathetic drive and adrenaline release. And it might be a genetic thing. It might hold for some people. Um, and I seem to be one of these. And if your sympathetic tone is higher during the night, your sleep is much more fragmented, you have less low wave sleep, perhaps a little more REM sleep. And for me, it seems to be the case. So why growth hormone despite being so young? You know, like, is it, you still think it's going to, like, you still think it's necessary? No. I mean, <laughs> yes and no. Um, I think it's best to keep IGF-1 between two and 300. And given I'm on a ketogenic-like diet, my IGF-1 was, without the growth hormone, well below 200. I just wanted to have it in the optimum range. I don't want to go above 300. Like, bodybuilders go up to, like, seven, 800 nanograms per milliliters. I want to um, titrate my IGF-1 to be... It's actually on the lower end of 200 right now. So I could be well within the uh, normal variation existing in the population. So I'm actually at the 70th or 60th percentile. And I think the risk of doing this is lower than the risk of not doing it. <laughs> but I do uh, four times a year. Um, I do like a fasting mimicking diet for five days and I get my IGF-1 to really to one or second percentile, so to very low levels, like to 100. I think it's very great for general rejuvenation, especially if I after spike the IGF-1 again, again, all many senescent cells are going to be eliminated while uh, new stem cells proliferated. Interesting. Uh, how common is IGF-1 deficiency? Very hard to say, but IGF-1 does drop with age. And IGF-1 is very important for vigor. I mean, it's one of these hormones that most people are scared of. IGF-1 in cancer, IGF-1 in longevity, Laron syndrome. We have no growth hormone receptor. And um, yeah, but of course, in lower lift, uh, um, shorter lift mammals, it's going to have a very potent effect. But in mammals like us, and we already have many genetic adaptations that favor a long lifespan, and some of them are mediated by the IGF-1 pathway. Mm. And if we have a very high IGF-1, we might um, reach the hayflake limit faster, which is the telomere erosion, which means our cells can't divide anymore. And we also might drive cancers, but it's very well a U-shaped curve there. Um, if we have very low IGF-1, we also have an increase in cancers because it's very important important for the, the immune system. And the immune system is our main weapon to fight incipient cancers. And also, one thing that is most neglected with hormones is we just look what does the hormone directly to our body. But we also need to look how does the hormone influence our lifestyle. So... If we have high IGF-1 or normal IGF-1, we have more vigor, we have more energy, we feel more vital. 
which means we can, we have the energy motivation required to sleep well, to eat well, to exercise. And most of the diseases we have, they're lifestyle diseases. So cancer, um, diabetes, um, neurodegenerative, Alzheimer's, they are, yeah, they are tightly linked to lifestyle choices we make. And if a hormone gives us energy and motivation, I mean, then our lifestyle is going to be better. And that has a very potent effect. Usually, in my opinion, this especially holds for T3 and IGF-1, two hormones that if given high enough dosage, shorten lifespan. But let's say you get them to the 60th percentile. Um, I think the effect they have, first, direct effect on tissues, but also the um, direct effect on your well-being and energy and mood, leading you to making smarter lifestyle choices regardless of that you feel much better from moment to moment and life is just a string of of individual moments right next to each other but they it's all gonna be like um beneficial for your um lifespan i think and also life is about like uh, uh, living about feeling time and not just passing it i mean i don't i want to live to 100 and kick ass i don't want to just vegetate like a vegetable being cold and feeling <laughs> crappy all the time <laughs> oh 100 man 100 percent you know, as I was going through these articles, I was thinking, you know, it'd be so useful if you probably thought of this, but to maybe like present this in a, in a mind map or some sort of visual that shows people like, you know, you've seen the very technical hormone maps, but maybe like, you know, testosterone, thyroid, and then just explaining like this influences this, you know, maybe... It's just so hard. There's so many factors, and you really need to do a lot of studying to even grasp the principles. Yeah. And I think it's 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 a topic that is just so complex. That's I mean, there are certain certainly ways how you can simplify things, but you really need to be you really need to have a very good understanding of physiology, biochemistry, um, some genetics, pathology, um, to even start begin. To grasp the effects these hormones have, and what is influencing what and why, and um, it's yeah, I don't I don't know whether it's feasible, but also I'm not very creative in that kind of sense, so it's not I would not be the right person to do that. Yeah, the time would be better spent writing articles, I guess. Well, I mean, thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, I mean that's something that maybe we can do a collaboration on, perhaps maybe down the track. I don't. I've got a good yeah, you know, I've got a good team behind me that can help with. You know, orchestrating doesn't have to be nowhere near as technical as what you're explaining now, but just a very brief over, overview. I know because I'm the same as you, you don't like to just skim the surface, yeah. uh, but it would be useful because people... It would be so useful, yeah. I mean, if you have any ideas how that can be approached in real life, yeah, hit me up. I'm I'm very open to that. Yeah, yeah. It'd be a good way to... Well, I don't know if you have plans on, uh, you know, expanding upon this. Like, what are your... What are your future endeavors? Like, what, what, is, what does that look like? So, um, at first, I just wanted to actually share my story. Um, it's called How Hormones Destroyed and Saved My Life. I published it on Medium. And some people um, actually hit me up and they asked, like, what do I take and how do I take it? And then I started to lay out my protocol, actually on a Reddit post. It was just a Reddit post. And the response was super great and super interesting. And I thought, like, yeah, maybe I can do a follow-up article how I replaced my hormones. And it was like a two-minute read or a three-minute read here on Medium. And then I started to add more stuff. And then it got to like a 20-minute read. And then one day, people were hitting me up on, 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 they were just contacting me how to replace the individual hormones and common pitfalls they have and stuff like that. And then I started 
on a single day, I wrote like very short guides how to replace the hormones. So for all the five hormones, I wrote like a five minute read thing. And then it started to expand and it has been this project now for like the last month. And as I've been reviewing my old notes, which I've taken my notebook, I found like many interesting nuggets. I thought they cannot be found in a very comprehensive and non-technical way somewhere on the internet. And so I started to uh, write like ultimate guides on how to replace these hormones. For the only guide, I don't go in depth in the practical part is cortisol because I think I don't want to be the guy that tells people how they should do it because it can be dangerous. And before anyone does that, I would rather have a short conversation with them um, via Skype or email um, to really get to know the person because I don't want to be responsible neither legally nor personally uh, for any damage done. Of course, of course. Well, look, man, I'm very grateful you came on the show. And is this this your first... Like, is this your first podcast or? That's my third podcast. Um, oh, okay. Actually, yeah, but the other the other was just a super random podcast from a guy from Germany. He has like, I don't know how, how how big your podcast is. I have, I'm honest, I'm honest, I've not checked it out. But the other was like quite small, like 500 to 1,000 views. Yeah, no, this this will get a lot more, a lot more uh, publicity. And I, I, I think you 100% deserve it. And that's why I brought you on the show because like, the stuff you're doing, man, it's going to, it's going to change people's lives. You, you've seen, yeah. you've seen it change your own life. Um, yeah. you know, it's really impactful stuff. And it's again, stuff yeah. that no one's talking about. So, thanks. um, yeah. thanks for coming on the show, man. I'm going to hit the, thanks hit, for having me hit the, uh, I'm going to stop recording now. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.